Good evening. We're going to ask for some audience participation tonight, so throughout our, our, our lecture this evening there will be some points in which we see if you all can recite some key verses that are found in the scriptures and some key phrases. So you may want to keep on your toes because we'll use the hand signal to get your attention to read some things back at us. But in the passage just read, which is a prayer of David to celebrate the occasion of bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Zion, along with the resounding praise and thanksgiving that is offered to God, David exclaims something that should catch our attention and make us take notice. The Spirit through David states in verse 15, Be mindful how often? Say that again. Always. Louder. Always of his covenant. Be mindful always of his covenant. Now what covenant are we to be mindful of? The record further explains the covenant made with Abraham, the oath unto Isaac, a law of Jacob, and to Israel an everlasting covenant. This clear description calls our minds back to the detailed record given in Genesis of God calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to lead him to a land which I will show thee. It was there that God promised unto Abraham or Abram, later changing his name to Abraham, great and precious promises. Promises that only through a belief in them can we acceptably approach God. Promises that are a matter of life and death. Now, out of the billions of this earth, there are only a tiny few that view the Abrahamic promises with any sense of value and that understand the key role that the Abrahamic covenant has upon the salvation of mankind. Even among the remnant of true believers, the wonderful simplicity of the promises made to Abraham can dull our sincere and constant appreciation for what is too often delegated as only belonging in the children's Sunday school. It must be remembered and appreciated that what we view as basic is far above the grasp and understanding of the overwhelming mass of humanity. We will never grow too learned, too intelligent, too wise, or too old for the most basic fundamentals of God's Word. And with this in mind, it is both our responsibility and our desire this evening to restate, review the basics of our hope. Now, Brother Tom last night spoke to us concerning the seeds of Abraham, and our subject tonight will, for obvious reasons, overlap into what he spent great detail and did a wonderful job on last night. Uh, we'll leak into that a little bit, but mainly our purpose this evening will be a general overview of the promises made to Abraham. Our discussion, as indicated by our title this evening, will center upon the promises made to Abraham, the prophetic and doctrinal outcome of God's covenant, as well as the striking exhortational effect these promises are to have on how we live our lives. Time this evening only allows us a brief overview of a very extensive and far-reaching subject. The Edenic and Davidic covenants are also directly related to our subject tonight, but because of time constraints as well, we'll have to leave their worthy consideration for another occasion. 
And we may hear it from someone else this week. Now, the question that we ask, why are we to be mindful, always mindful? Before we continue any further, we ask the question, why are we exhorted to be always mindful of the covenant made to Abraham? Our answer, the covenant that God made with Abraham is the foundation and outline of God's plan of salvation for this earth. Anything and everything that we call doctrine, everything that we, we consider concerning our walk, all roads either lead to or go through the Abrahamic covenant. It contains all that God has to offer and all that is revealed afterwards in the scriptures is added information about the same promise. Adam brought sin, condemnation, alienation, and death upon the human race by his transgression in the garden. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men in whom, in whom all have sinned. But in the covenant with Abraham, we see the framework laid for salvation from this terrible plight. Abraham and his seed were promised the land for an everlasting possession. Here is the promise of everlasting life. They could not possess the land forever unless they lived forever. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And we'll cover a lot of verses that, that have already been referred to this, this week, and I'm sure will be referred to many more times throughout the week. This should be a memory verse. This should be a memory verse. And we've heard it stated already this, this, this week. Here we read that the gospel is the power of God unto what? Can you please say that louder? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now the so-called religious world makes out this gospel to be a New Testament phenomenon. But yet we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that God preached the gospel unto Abraham. Now, Brother Jay Johnson in his class this week is, is defining and going through what the gospel is. But for, our, for the sake of our talk tonight, we're going to go with the simple definition. What is the gospel? It's the things concerning the... and the name of... Let's do that again. The things concerning... and the... Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so considering that the gospel was preached or proclaimed to Abraham... It stands to reason that we find the good news of the kingdom and the name in the Abrahamic covenant. These are matters that we must understand, matters that we must be dogmatic about. And for the reason that it has a direct impact on salvation, this is why we are exhorted to be always mindful of God's covenant with Abraham. It is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, before we go any further, we, we, we've thrown this term covenant around. We've referred to it many times. What does the word covenant mean? It is very important that we clearly define its meaning. Now, the word covenant is from the Hebrew word berit, 
and its most prevalent meaning is that of a legal agreement, promise, or contract between two parties, or possibly more. Webster's Dictionary defines the English word that we use as covenant as a promise usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. Brother John Thomas refers to the Abrahamic covenant as a divine legal instrument. Let me say that again. A divine legal instrument. Now, unfortunately, there is a growing trend within our community to shun anything referred to as legal. But for those enlightened fully by God's truth, it will be realized that God works according to laws that He Himself has established. Therefore, God uses legal means in fulfillment of His will. God uses legal means in the fulfillment of His will. We cannot escape the all-pervading and legal aspects of God's workings with man. Therefore, the phrase used by Brother John Thomas is most fitting in relation to our subject tonight. In defining the word covenant, and Brother Tom and I use the same booklet extensively in, in doing our research for, for our, our talk, but this is from Brother Ted, Ted Ferris' 1997 booklet concerning the Abrahamic Covenant. And he says this, Whenever two parties conclude an agreement in a formal manner, it is done by means of a legal covenant, which is binding upon the parties involved. In the case of a covenant between God and man, because God cannot default, it is also called a promise. For this reason, the Abrahamic covenant is called by both terms and can properly be called a divine covenant legal instrument. There's also a fuller meaning to the word berit that we need to be aware of. And this comes, comes out of some readings out of uh, the world's redemption. And we would refer to you to Brother, Brother Williams' work concerning this subject of what a covenant is. But berit is a, deriv a derivative from the primitive Hebrew root word of Barah, which is a synonym of the word barar. Try saying those two words really fast. Words that carry the meaning to purify or cleanse. Words that carry the meaning to purify or cleanse. It implies a purification or a purifier. This is something that we will touch on in more detail in just a little bit. But we see that in God's covenants with man that sin and sinfulness exist on the part of man. God's covenants are intended to reconcile men to God and make man fit to inherit God's eternal promises and to fully glorify his name. Purification is necessary for this to be accomplished. Now again, we will discuss this in a, a little later when we consider how the promises made to Abraham are confirmed or ratified. Now, we have already made many references to the promises, but now it is necessary for us to review what exactly the promises are that God made to Abraham. Using terminology based upon our modern-day contracts, we refer to these as the terms of the covenant. 
Now, time does not allow us this evening to read all the scriptures associated with the promises, but we would like to review them by chapter. If we could first turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We know from this chapter that God will make of Abram, and we're going to use the term Abram for now until we get further on in these promises. God will make of Abram a great nation. God will bless Abram and make Abram's name great, and Abram will be a blessing. God promised that I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee. God promises that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And unto thy seed I will give this land. Genesis 13. And we're going to read some verses in here, some memory verses. Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, and I would like for everybody to read this, and if you've got it memorized, that's even better, starting with the quotation. So, and the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Forever. God promises the land to both Abram and his seed. All the land of Canaan forever. God would multiply Abram's seed as the dust of the earth. Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Now, I know these things are basic issues. I know these are things that we've covered over and over again throughout our lives for many of us. But if, but if these promises do not thrill us, if they do not excite us, they do not energize us. I'm not sure what will. Genesis chapter 15. In verse 6, we are told that Abram believed the promises that God had made and that God counted or imputed it to him for righteousness. Now, not a blind faith. That has to be understood. Abraham did not have blind faith, which is not faith at all but he had an intelligent comprehension and acceptance of God's Word. Now, in the same chapter, in verse 18, we see the size of the land grant described as being from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, we're going to take a, a slight detour here regarding this land grant. Now, within the past couple of months, 
uh, and my father found this in the Wall Street Journal. There was an ad that was taken out in, in that paper from the American Jewish Committee. Uh, the question they asked is, how can there be peace in the Middle East if Israel isn't even on the map today? Now, this map is not showing up too well on the screen, but what we have here is samples taken out of some of the Middle Eastern countries that surround Israel uh, as far as how they view uh, the nation of Israel. They do not even recognize it on their map. Uh, and from the promises made to Abraham, we know that, that there is a problem with what man's perception of what uh, exists there and will exist in the future versus what God's plans for that area is. Hopefully that will show up a little bit better. This is from a, a Syrian fifth grade school book. And we have the surrounding nations. It's out of the book Geography of Syria. Right there in the middle, not Israel. It's what they call Palestine. They do not recognize uh, Israel is even, even existing there. Those poor school children. This is from the uh, Palestinian Authority school book, Atlas of Palestine. Again, we have all the neighboring countries around Israel, and then smack dab in the middle is Palestine, not Israel. You notice there's no West Bank or Gaza Strip or anything that is, is written on there. They, they claim the whole thing. This is from the Lebanon Ministry of Tourism uh, map that they hand out for the tourists. Again, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon to the north. Smack dab in the middle is Palestine. And then finally, Saudi Arabia, sixth grade school book, geography, surrounding countries, there in the center, Palestine. Now let's take a look at what God has planned. The land, is, the land grant as promised by God, from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates, to include a portion of present-day Egypt, all of present-day Jordan, all of the lands claimed by the Palestinians, all of Lebanon, a large part of Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. Aren't those neighboring people and the people of the world in for a surprise? Genesis 17. Now, Abram is no longer called Abram here. He's now Abraham. The fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is added to his name. The number five representing the number of grace. He goes from being exalted father to a father of a multitude. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 17, the term everlasting covenant is used to describe the covenant that God has made between Abraham and his seed. There was another covenant that was not everlasting, that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Horeb, that dealt with temporal blessings and also was a sign and signal and types and shadows involved that would lead or should lead them to Christ. A covenant that fulfilled its mission and was taken away. The covenant made with Abraham is everlasting. Now keep this phrase in mind when we discuss Christ as he relates to these promises and the hope of resurrection. Remember that Christ was raised from the dead by the blood of the what? Blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, in this chapter, Abraham is promised here that he will be a father of many nations. 
king will come out of Abraham. The Lord covenants to be a God unto Abraham and to Abraham's seed forever. God promises to allow the seed of Abraham to join in on the everlasting covenant. Now Genesis 22. Now, follow along with me here and be ready for the pointer again because I'm going to leave you all hanging and I want to make sure that you all are reading along. After Abraham was tested in offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, God makes an oath with Abraham. We read in verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 22, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall what? He shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, does it state here, now it depends on what Bible you use too, does it state here their enemies, implying a multitude, or does it state his enemies, referring to an individual? It is singular, not plural. Now, the... uh, I believe it's the uh, uh, NIV and I think also the RSF, RSV, the Revised Standard Version, refer to it in plurality. Uh, we have to be very careful there. That is not the intention of the Scriptures. It is singular, and that was discussed at great length uh, last night. We know that the focus of Abraham's seed here is singular, speaking of certain individual, of a certain individual, descended from Abraham. Continuing on, we read, And in thy seed... This certain individual who would descend from Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now here we have the promise to multiply Abraham as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is upon the seashore. Give possession to the singular seed of the gate of his enemies. Or in other words, this individual would defeat all enemies and rule over them. There are some allusions there to the coming kingdom, as well as the land grant already discussed. Or discussed, excuse me, that all nations might find a blessing through this singular seed. Now, how do we know we are speaking of a singular seed and not a multitude? Let's turn to Galatians 3:16. Again, more memory verses here. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and two seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, the prophetic and doctrinal outcome of these promises. The prophetic and doctrinal outcome of these promises. These promises that we have mentioned are plainly stated and clearly indicate the promise of a future an eternal inheritance of the land, a multitudinous seed coming out of Abraham, a singular seed who would rule over all enemies and in whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, but on the surface it would seem that we have a problem. What happened to Abraham? What happened to him? He died. He died. Was he a promise to place among the angels in heaven? 
No, he was not. He was promised a land, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. All the land that he could see, and then some, forever. Now, in referring, to the, referring back to the land grant, we, we showed a visualization of what has been promised, but we also have to realize that that is not necessarily the limit of that land grant. One thing that we did not discuss is that in Romans 4.13, Abraham is referred to as receiving the promise to be heir of the world or the cosmos. In Psalms 2.8, we read, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, speaking of Christ. We are told that the meek shall inherit the earth. So even though we have a land grant given, we find that there is a wider scope to this land grant in later revelation in the scriptures. Now, we know that Abraham died. Hebrews 11.13 tells us what? What does it tell us? What's Hebrews 11.13, and it's been read here already this weekend. These all died in faith, not having received the... They died in faith, not having received the promises. Okay, what's simple to us is not so simple for the world around us. Simple concepts, yes. Widely understood concepts, no. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, concerning Abraham. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession. Now, some try to point to the Jewish inheritance of the land after coming out of Egypt as the fulfillment of the promises. But this, that, was a precursor, a token of a much grander and permanent fulfillment. Remember, it was to Abraham and to his seed that the promises were made forever. Now, how do we know that God will fulfill his word? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Hebrews 6, 13. Please look that up. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by who? Himself. And skipping down to verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. What are the two things? The promise and the oath. The promise that God has made and the absolute pledge that he will fulfill what he has promised. Now, though not directly stated in these promises, but clearly implied and elaborated upon elsewhere in the scriptures, there are explicit prophetic and doctrinal teachings that come out of these promises made and that form the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, the hope of life eternal, and not in the heavens, but on earth. Abraham was told that he would die, so there would be the need and the hope extended to Abraham of a resurrection to receive the promises. This lesson was powerfully taught to Abraham in Genesis 15 
when a deep sleep and a horror of great darkness fell over him, which is a symbol of death, a death that he would have to awaken from to receive the promises. Also in Genesis 22, we read of the testing of Abraham's faith by being commanded to offer up his only son, Isaac. Abraham demonstrated his faith and understanding of the hope of resurrection here by recognizing that God's promises could not be hampered by death. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, regarding what was going through Abraham's mind at the time, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Being a figure or a representation, Abraham was able to see in this action God giving his only begotten son, and the resurrection of that son to life through sacrifice, who was brought again from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. In the promises, we see the unmistakable lesson that faith is a requirement in order for man to be found acceptable before God. Abraham was taught that through covenant and only through covenant. Let me say that again. Abraham was taught that through covenant and only through covenant making would such benefits be realized. It is clearly implied that through covenant there is the justification and forgiveness of sin, for it is an impossibility that sinful man can inherit these eternal promises. Sin, both constitutionally and personal, must be atoned for before a relationship with God can be entered into. We see through the animal offerings made by Abraham of the necessity of the shedding of blood and the need of the shedding of blood of a greater sacrifice, that being the promised seed, Christ, through whom salvation would be realized and the fulfillment of the promises confirmed. Not only salvation for Abraham, but also to a multitude of others referred to as the many nations who associate themselves with the promised seed. We are taught that inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant is extended to all who are found to be in the promised seed or in Christ through faith. More on that in a moment. Now, the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. We have, excuse me, we have made reference to the promised seed as being Christ the individual seed. But what role does he play in this matter of the Abrahamic covenant? What role does Christ play in the Abrahamic covenant? This promise, individual seed, is not only mentioned in reference to the promises made to Abraham, but as Abraham himself would have been aware of, as Abraham himself would have been aware of, and what had been promised shortly after the fall of man in the garden, as the seed who would bruise or destroy the head of the serpent. In other words, the destruction of the sin-fledged nature that hinders man's participation in eternal life. Abraham asked the question in Genesis 15:8, still named Abram at this time, regarding the inheritance of the land. He says, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? How shall I know? Now, this is not a sign of lack of faith. 
The fact is that when these promises were made, Abraham was a stranger and sojourner among those stronger and mightier than he. He also understood his lifespan was limited. Abraham was looking for evidence or a token of things not seen. And after the manner of covenant making during those times, Abraham understood that something was needed to confirm, authorize, or ratify. That's a word we don't hear used very often anymore. And so it's a word that we find throughout the older writings in the brotherhood. The term ratify, which means to authorize or confirm. Abraham understood that something was needed to confirm, authorize, or ratify the covenant that God had made with him. A covenant is not legally functional until it is ratified. What was the answer given to Abraham? He was told to take a heifer, a she-goat, and a ram, all three years of age. Interestingly enough, number three is the number of resurrection. And divide them in the midst the birds were not to be divided. Now, sacrificing animals in such a way as this was a common practice in those times in dealing with covenants between men and is even referred to by the prophet Jeremiah. But the sacrificing of these animals in and of themselves would have no eternal value. But what it represented in the case of God's covenant with Abraham had the utmost significance. Brother Williams in the world's redemption states concerning this, in the very nature of the case, then a covenant provided by God for fallen man demands a sacrifice which will admit of reconciliation and atonement between God who is pure and man who is sinful. And this must take place before the covenants of promise could be realized. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 16 through 18. Now, the authorized version of this passage is very poor. It's a very poor translation of what the Spirit Word is trying to express. But the emphatic diaglot is much clearer. And this is from the emphatic diaglot. It says, For where a covenant exists, the death of that which has ratified it is necessary to be produced. Because a covenant is firm over dead victims, since it is never valid when that which ratifies it is alive. Hence, not even the first has been instituted without blood. A covenant cannot be enforced. It cannot become fully operative until the death of the covenant sacrifice. Who is the covenant sacrifice represented by those animals that Abraham divided? Who is it? Christ, it is Christ, the real covenant sacrifice, the perfectly righteous seed to whom the promises given to Abraham were also made. Now, if you will remember, we made reference to the fact that the word covenant, berit, also has a deeper meaning of to purify or cleanse, and that it implies purification or a purifier. Not only does it represent the covenant or the agreement, but also the sacrifice which confirms the covenant by opening up a way of justification, purification for sin-stricken man. And this was touched on uh, very clearly last night. Moses declared to the people in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Who other did this blood represent 
but the blood of the victim slain is the covenant sacrifice, Christ. In Isaiah 49, 8, this has also been read. Let's turn that up. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. Isaiah 49, 8. We read concerning Christ. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Christ was spoken of as being given as a covenant, or in other words, as the covenant sacrifice. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, this is another important verse, a good memory verse to put in our minds. Zechariah chapter 9, 11, we are taught of the only revealed means in which men will be brought out of the grave. Let me say that again. In Zechariah chapter 9, 11, we are taught of the only revealed means in which men will be brought out of the grave when Christ returns. By the, blood of the ever, excuse me, by the blood of the covenant I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. This is a representation of death. Whose blood releases from the pit? Death. The blood of the covenant victim. Again, we are speaking of Christ. Now, it will be noticed back in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham walked between the animal parts that had been divided. Brother Williams explains concerning this, he says, and I quote, In this way, in covenants between God and man, or men, man who is a sinner and under justice without mercy deserves death, may be said to have passed into the death of the victim, or to have died sacrificially or representatively, can't say that, admitting of atonement. It can be said that in order to join in covenant relationship with God through faith, Abraham had to avail himself of the blood of Christ, the covenant victim, in type. He had to pass out of Adam into Christ, from one relationship as a constituted sinner into the justifying effect of the covenant victim. And it must be understood that Christ also, as a representative of the fallen race, was also unclean, in need of atonement. In order for him to inherit the promises, he also had to be justified. How is this? Through his own blood. As the covenant victim, he was the beneficiary of his own sacrifice. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Let's look that up. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto who? Made unto the Father. In Galatians 3.17 we read that the covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ. If only the masses of professing Christianity could grasp the connection that the sacrifice of Christ has to the great and precious promises made to Abraham and its bearing on God's plan for this earth. It may seem easy to us, 
It's not easy for them. And if only many calling themselves Christadelphians understood the absolutely critical role that covenant making through, the, through faith and the shedding of blood has co- in connection with the hope of resurrection and the promise of life everlasting. Now, this is where we'll overlap a little bit into, into uh, Brother Tom's marks uh, from last night. Now, up to this point, we've discussed the fact that both Abraham and Christ, the promised individual seed, were heirs of the covenant that God had made. But do these promises include anyone else? To Abraham it was promised, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand upon the seashore, and thee and thy seed shall inherit the land. Now, I would request some patience in here as we get through this. We will explain ourselves as we go into this further. Now, speaking from a natural sense, after the flesh, we exclusively understand the Jews, the nation of Israel, as the seed of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. It does not include the other sons of Abraham. Let me repeat that. It does not include the other sons of Abraham. Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, don't have a chance. But we must also understand that there is a spiritual aspect as well that is of the utmost importance for us to understand. We must realize that the promises involve a multitudinous seed of Abraham according to the Spirit. Now, regarding the nation of Israel after the flesh, relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, Brother Ted Fair had this to say in in the same booklet that we referred to earlier and that, that Brother Tom was talking about last night. He says, starting off, he says, does this mean then that the whole nation of Israel shall become heirs of the Abrahamic covenant? By no means. And please, I'm asking for some patience as we continue to explain this. The reason for this is that another divine principle of exclusiveness was operative, namely, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Romans 9, 8. He continues, We need to digress here and discuss the significance of the word counted. A synonym for counted is reckoned, treated as, or deemed. What Paul is saying is that out of the multitudinous nation of Israel, the Jews, only those who were the children of the promise, that is, those who had faith in the covenant, were deemed, reckoned, and counted as the true seed of Abraham. So just because one is born a natural descendant of Abraham, and again we still ask for patience, through Isaac and Jacob does not automatically entitle them to be an heir as found under the terms of the covenant. Paul states in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and this has been read also, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is a natural and spiritual application to the term Israel. Jesus referred to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And the Apostle Paul refers to the saints in Galatia as the Israel of God. Galatians 6.16 Paul is explaining that just because one is born an Israelite after the flesh does not automatically make them an Israelite after the Spirit. We'll explain the relationship between the two in just a moment. The qualifying element that makes one a part of the children or seed of promise is the principle of faith the principle of faith. This cannot be thrown out out of the window 
under any circumstance, the principle of faith. This is clearly spelled out in Galatians 3, 6 and 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Verse 22 of the same chapter we read, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Brother Fair continues along these lines by concluding, the only natural Israelite who will inherit the promises are those who become heirs of the Abrahamic covenant through faith therein and who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. They constitute the called, the chosen, and the faithful, Israelites indeed, the Israel of God, the true spiritual seed of Abraham. Now, example of those who we are speaking of or referring to would obviously include such as Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, the prophets, the apostles, and a whole multitude, a multitude of Jews whose names have gone unrecorded in the Scripture. Now, before we are mistakenly accused of overlooking those of natural Israel, the natural descendants of Abraham, and excluding them from God's plan and purpose, let it be understood that they are still considered to be God's people and will have a role in the fulfillment of God's promises. And we will deal with that aspect in a moment. But before we do that, we wish to deal with the matter of the Gentiles. What about the Gentiles? Regarding the Gentiles, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and let's turn to that chapter, please. Ephesians 2, 12. Ephesians 2.12 states that at that time, again, these are more memory verses, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Aliens and strangers from the covenants of promise. Not a very good situation to be in, especially when we understand that it's only through the covenants of promise that mankind has any hope. Unless we become the seed of Abraham, we were without hope. What answer is given? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes, or maybe a better rendering of that is at once, were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. By coming in contact with the blood of Christ, the covenant sacrifice, through the principle of faith, we too have the hope of these promises. Paul continues his explanation of how the Gentiles are allowed access to the promises through the redemptive work of Christ. And then states in verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So along with the faithful Israelites mentioned a moment ago, the Gentiles are also allowed access to the promises as part of the spiritual seed. They, we, are spoken of in the scriptures as being adopted, grasped into the one hope as beautifully explained in Romans 9, and so well explained last night. The Gentiles, and we want to make this point emphatically, the Gentiles do not replace Israel as inheritors of salvation, as is the dogma of those who hold to something known as replacement theology. But by God's mercy, and only by His mercy, are we allowed to be joint partakers, joint inheritors of the promises made to Abraham through the redemptive work of Christ. Ephesians 3, 6. 
that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. As Gentiles, we deserve nothing. Nothing. That should help put us in our place properly. How do we avail ourselves redemptive, uh, redemption through Christ? It's the covenant sacrifice. Let's turn to Galatians 3, 27, 29. And if you don't have to turn there, don't. But we're going to read this together. Galatians 3, 27, 29. And here we go, starting with the word for. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How could it be stated any clearer than that? Now, Israel, according to the flesh, nationally speaking, has always and will continue to play a central role in God's plan. They are the natural seed of Abraham, not the Ishmaelites, not the sons of Keturah. They are the natural seed of Abraham. And Scripture after Scripture explains in great detail their restoration to the land of promise, their future repentance, future prosperity, their exalted position over the Gentile nations, and the restoration to favor with God. These are things that excite us, they energize us, when we see Israel daily before us. Romans 11.26, Paul clearly states, and again, this has been read as well, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, excuse me, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. When we view Israel, we are to sorrow in their misfortunes and persecutions and to joy in their success and triumphs. They speak to us, and this has been mentioned several times by more than one speaker, they speak to us as evidence of our faith and act as witness, witness to the surety of God's plan for this earth. Speaking of the future commonwealth, Brother Williams in the world's redemption eloquently states the relationship that exists between the natural and spiritual Israel. Remembering the spiritual Israel is made up of the faithful, Jew and Gentile. He says, Whoa, that's gone. Okay, ignore my screen, please. I'm still trying to figure out how to work that. Ignore that up there. The covenant that God made with Abraham is not, well, excuse me, the commonwealth, the, and I quote, the commonwealth will be enjoyed by the Israel of God. First, according to the Spirit, and secondly, the nation of Israel restored to the land of their fathers. The former, which constitute the one great body politic of which Christ is the head, will be the ruler. Those who will have overcome, prevailed, and become princes with God, kings of whom Christ is king, king of kings and lord of lords, these will be the rulers, while the twelve tribes of Israel restored to the land promised to Abraham will be the subjects to be planted in a land of their own and never moved, neither shall the children of wickedness any more afflict them as before time. The spiritual 
and the natural. And what a wonderful relationship that will be. In conclusion, the covenant that God made with Abraham is not only to direct what we believe, but how we live our lives. We are told in Hebrews 11.13 regarding the faithful that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And there are three key words here that we could have spent a whole lecture on alone. They were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. To be persuaded, to embrace and to confess, to have true conviction, faith in what God has promised, results in a life, a frame of mind and disposition that is detached and that is separated from the cares, the politics, the ambitions, the pleasures and troubles of the world around us. Abraham forsook Ur of the Chaldees. Moses turned his back on the cares of Egypt. Israel was commanded to separate themselves from the, un from the unholy, as God said, Be ye holy as I am holy. The promises of God, the gospel preached unto Abraham, is much more than an ingenious system of doctrines, but is that which is something that must be practiced and demonstrated as a way of life. Do we believe in these promises in the way that Abraham and other faithful have? Then we must demonstrate in it or demonstrate it in what we think, what we hope for, live, and what we die for. We cannot on on one hand claim devotion to God's covenant, while on the other hand our lives are consumed with gaining a reward in this life from the heaps of vanity that characterize the current system of things. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, with all these matters in mind, let us heed the word of exhortation. Be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, even of the covenant which he made with Abraham and of his oath unto Isaac, and hath confirmed the same to Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give this land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. Thank you for your time this evening.